Are you an academic who is tired of interacting with students? Do you want to have the university version of resting investing? Then try tenure. Tenure. It means you never have to do real work again. Go to tenure.com slash moderated content. Sign me up. That sounds good. All right. Hello and welcome to the first ever live recording of moderated content. I think our entire listener base is in this room. The entire, <laughs> let's hear it from everybody who's ever downloaded moderated content. <laughs> yeah. All 12 of our listeners are, are, are here. It's a very well, niche it's audience. You're, you're clearly not a math professor, yes. so it's great. <laughs> right. Okay. So, uh, yes, this is Moderated Content, the weekly slightly random and not at all comprehensive news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dueck, and Alex Stamos. All right. We are starting the episode today with uh, an update from Alex's very own Stanford Internet Observatory, which released an update to its June report uh, on the distribution of self-generated child sexual abuse material. And we have David Teal here to walk us through uh, what the new findings were in the report. Uh, sure. So you know, a while back, I think in June, we published our first report looking at the ecosystem of uh, underage people selling their own explicit content online. Actually, the recheck began kind of in petty fashion, which was that uh, Linda tweeted saying that they had solved most of the problems. And so I went and hashtag searched and said, and then no, you were you done because David saw that Lindo Lacarino Yacarino yeah. tweeted something he said that's good enough for me yeah that's gonna yeah. be true <laughs> that's gonna be right we're just gonna walk away why would we do research in this space Linda said it's done so let's just wrap it up everybody Linda said it's done the trust and safety research conference is canceled please yep. go home <laughs> the gold standard in platform transparency right there uh, right, right there from Linda so what did you find David did you find it was over? That Twitter had fixed all the problems? The problem had not been solved. And to be huh. clear... What? Uh, <laughs> Come on, guys. Let's... Oh, my God. Gasp. They're gasping in the audience, the thousand oh, no, people in our audience. up the back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Call the medics. Okay, David, what, what did you actually find? Uh, and, and to be clear, uh, as we talked about in our original report, this is a pretty cross-platform problem. It's not that Twitter is unique in this regard, but I think what we've found since the initial report and doing a retest across Twitter and Instagram is that kind of what we were afraid would happen, uh, which is that people have gone through, kind of found the very obvious signatures, squashed them, put it on a block list, and called it a day, which is not to say there are not ongoing trust and safety efforts within those companies. But what we found was not as encouraging as we had hoped, basically. And we're talking about Twitter and Instagram as the big ones here. Yes, Twitter and Instagram almost entirely for the primary mechanisms. And, and what we've kind of seen is that there's this funnel mechanism where some platforms are really good at getting people to discover your content, but they have stricter content enforcement mechanisms. Some are really good for keeping a permanent user base, but have poor discoverability. So Telegram, no real discoverability, but really great at keeping content there. They don't have any content policy whatsoever, really. And so, you know, we, we see Twitter and Instagram being used to feed that funnel and to some degree TikTok. It, then kind of the new things that we found in the update, um, you know, we found some disappointing things when it came to blocking associated hashtags where they were doing exact string matching on uh, you know, very explicit hashtags, but if you added another character at the end, then it completely fooled it, which is not going to keep pace. Which you and I have had this discussion of like, is there any real good reason to allow the word pedo into a hashtag? Like how many it, people are actually tweeting about it, their pedometers? Uh, yeah, right? Hashtag like, pedos are super bad is something that you have to leave right. online. Apparently. That should probably be whitelisted. And right. then perhaps, yes. And, and so like in your report, you found just simple emojis. For example, you just add one emoji and the exact same strain, which is clearly for selling CSAM, yeah. was still allowed. Another interesting thing and, and something we didn't go into in the previous report is we found uh, our first confirmed example of uh, someone pretending to be underage to sell explicit material, but they weren't. Uh, which was something that we suspected might be the case. But in this case, we happened to find somebody that linked to a third-party platform that did uh, stronger verification of users. And 
had with reasonable confidence found that this person was actually pretending to be 14 while being over 18. Because they're they're effectively they're getting a, a 1099 from this platform, right? Yeah. They were they're actually making a significant amount of money pretending to be young. Um, and and to be clear, the platform was also not okay with this. But it was interesting because that's that's actually really really illegal as well. So saying that you have material of a 14 year old person, even if it is yourself, even if you don't have it still violates at least U.S. law to the point where that's like a five-year That's a sentence. good safety tip for this audience, for uh, all of you who are saying you're 16 online. Yes, the, the Just like I'm 28 still. You can the, hear the, the uncomfortable of people laugh. Yeah, yeah, you can people are like, oh, I see lots of phones have come out yeah. as uh, yeah. social media profiles are getting changed real fast. Yeah. So th I think that was... That was interesting, and it's unclear like how much that is that is really occurring. Yeah. Well, and, and then also when you talk about the age stuff, the other fascinating thing was that effectively you have probably actually young people, but whoever is selling this stuff, basically building captchas to advertise their age, right? That like in the original report, we talked about people saying I'm 18 minus four and such, like really obvious. And now you have effectively tests to try to get around any kind of automated scanning to look for for age advertising. Yeah, I mean. In, in, on the one hand, there's just these multiple levels of abstraction that they're applying on top of things. But it, I mean, presumably at a certain level, uh, it's just so much work to actually uh, solve puzzles to figure out what right, content you're One of them at. was like, count how many stars. Yeah, it was like, yeah. my, my age is in my location. My location says that it's in my pinned post. My pinned post says that you should go and do this thing to my header image. It's like, okay. Yeah, eventually, hopefully it, it wears them down and they get bored and go away. But right. that was interesting. I also thought it was, uh, we hadn't really noticed in the first report that on Twitter, they actually have a, a pretty quick rate of actioning some of these accounts. And the the reason why we are theorizing is actually because of community self-policing. Uh, and that is because Twitter actually allows the sale and advertising of adult content. And so they have people that have that are in that community and when they find anybody who is either underage or selling to underage people, they just start throwing off alarm bells and saying, everybody go report this person. Uh, and, you know, in some cases providing, uh, you know, chat screenshots or something where somebody admitted to not being the age they said they were. And so we're kind of guessing that that actually has um, a positive effect on why they get a lot of it taken down so quickly. And that that raises this interesting question where it's not necessarily a, a good thing that they allow mixed content overall and it makes their job harder in a number of ways right uh, but which we, we discussed before which is if you allowed nudity all of a sudden you've opted yourself into i have to decide if this is a 17 year old or a 19 year old which is hard right but the fact that they have an above ground community there unlike on a platform like instagram means that there are people that will police that community for you like, I, I don't know what the, the grand takeaway is there, but I think it's actually a, that's an interesting area for future study is like when you are more permissive with your content policy, how many basically volunteer enforcers do you gain because they want to preserve their actually legal content community? My question is, were you surprised by your findings in the update? Because the first report that you released got quite a lot of press, um, generated a lot of headlines and was, was really bad for the for the companies. There was a, got a lot of attention about it. Uh, and then it seems like there's still some pretty low-hanging fruit just uh, a little while later. Um, he was like, surprised because Linda said it was solved. Right, I mean... And you can still see the thousand-yard stare that David has, <laughs> that he was shaken the to the core, yeah. that yeah. Linda's statement was not true. How could you ever believe in anything ever again? Right, uh, it's like he doesn't believe in truth or... <laughs> yeah, the existence of a of a consensual reality because Linda Yaccarino said something that was not true about trust and safety. Yeah, right. And so, am I am I wrong with that takeaway? Like, there seems like there's some low hanging fruit, and and why why is that so? There is low hanging fruit, and it's mostly just because so many uh, organizations have shifted towards reactive postures rather than active investigation. And it is true that you can there is an unlimited amount of resources that you can spend on trying to proactively investigate harms on your platforms but there are also things that are you know have a have a middle ground of being like moderately difficult to to detect with harms that are pretty uh extreme in a number of cases and uh, so i yeah i wouldn't say it's it's surprising given kind of the the overall trust and safety climate and it's also you know not surprising that you've got kids that are devising ways to escape the notice of adults trying to enforce their behavior. That's a, 
a, a fairly old concept, I'm led to believe. I, as a father of multiple teenagers, I'm shocked that kids are really good at beating their parents at these things. But thank you so much, David. We pre appreciate your work and appreciate you giving the update, of which there'll be many more, unfortunately. Right? I, and this is why I'm here, to learn what I'm supposed to be working on. So. Right. Does anybody have any task-ins for David? Because uh, he likes to listen to this podcast to find out what SIO is doing next. Anyway? Okay, great. We're looking forward to your next report, David, which will be available in, let's just say, 13 days. How about that? I'm on it. Okay, great. And it's here for David, everybody. Thank you. All right. So uh, for the next segment, if, if this podcast had a catchphrase, I think it would probably be something like the only podcast to comprehensively cover trust and safety news and the NCAA conference realignment. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, a second, a second, close second would be something along the lines of India is the most important jurisdiction for the future of freedom of expression online. We talk about it a lot uh, on this podcast and uh, that's because it's really, really important. And it's not just uh, simply because of the sheer number of people in, in India that are affected by um, what happens there but it's also uh, for many platforms the uh, largest future growth opportunity because they're uh, you know saturated in, in western markets and, and locked out of China and it's also looked at by many other countries uh, as a model for how to regulate the internet as uh, as the government takes an increasingly authoritarian turn um, and it's geopolitically important to, to other uh, governments and so in the middle of this diplomatic uproar that we're having at the moment around uh, India and Canada's accusation um, that India was involved in a murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Uh, the Washington Post had a timely report, I think, uh, or, or a series of reports, actually, really, really good reporting about what's happening um, on the internet. And in particular, a story about Meta's reticence to take down uh, one of my favorite things, a coordinated inauthentic behavior network because of fears <laughs> of the Indian government. So I think uh, it's, it's a good story that's a, a reminder of the geopolitical and business pressures hampering the fight for free, free expression in the, in the country. But I'm curious, uh, Alex, you know, this is your bread and butter. This is something you worked on a lot at the company. So what, what struck you uh, about this reporting? Yeah, so it's not shocking in that, you know, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, our team uh, led by Dr. Shelby Grossman uh, over here. Shelby hates waving when I point at her. Hey, Shelby. Hey, Shelby. Hey, uh, Shelby. Hi. Hi, Shelby. Hi, Shelby. Shelby, the, the, uh, the listeners can hear the embarrassment they, and fury coming see. from from yeah. coming from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Shelby led a team that looked into a bunch of activity that was pro Modi, pro BJP from uh, coordinated and authentic accounts, uh, which you love us for us to talk about. And one of the fascinating things is the data we used came from the platforms, and they said absolutely nothing about it publicly. Right, and so this was a situation in which Twitter and Facebook both took down networks, but unlike almost every other situation, you know, there was just a big one where Facebook screamed from the from the rooftops that they had taken down Chinese activity. Mm -hmm. um, they said absolutely nothing about India. And so like you said, it, India is incredibly important for lots of reasons. But unfortunately this last month has been like on the democracy to authoritarian scale. India has gone from kind of backsliding not semi, you know, mostly free democracy to like Saudi Arabia with elections, right? It's like, is, is where we're getting, where if you're, if you're in a situation where you have this level of suppression of disinformation and uh, murdering your assassinating your political dissidents in other countries, that's pretty incredible stand. And, and so it's, I think like there's an, it's going to be interesting to see how the companies act from here on out because it's clear that one of the pressures here is all the major Western platforms are locked out of the People's Republic of China. They will never be let in, right? There's no there's no situation in which it makes sense for the Chinese Communist Party, no matter what promises that they extract, to let an American company into the Chinese market. So if you're already locked out there, to be locked out of China and India, being it means being locked out of a third of the populace of the planet. And that is not something that uh, Mark Zuckerberg gets to go say to his shareholders, right? Um, and so it does give China's position here gives Modi a huge amount of leverage. They have used that leverage against TikTok in the past, and it's pretty clear that that leverage has been used to both bend the decisions that are made around content moderation, and then also to bend the kind of public statements that could be possibly made that are def you know basically automatic when you deal with any kind of other state. But for India, become highly problematic. Um, for our report, I should just point out. Um, 
you know, yes, we provided attribution to the Indian government based upon stuff we had. It wasn't that hard because you ended up with uh, a member, a an officer in the Indian military complaining to the Indian press that the their accounts had been taken down by Facebook and how angry they were <laughs> that like, oh, they took down our fake accounts. We're so upset about it. So it was like, it's, it's effectively an open secret in India that there's both the disinformation campaigns happening as well as pressuring the company to take down Indian speech. Yeah, and I mean, it's just, um, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the companies uh, in, in many instances, but this is an area where I do feel like they are being asked to solve geopolitical problems with very little backing um, from like uh, right. the US government, for example, which has been completely silent uh, on, on this matter. And, you know, I think it, it is incumbent on democracies and uh, then uh, to, to champion free speech values. What would that look like? I mean, we've talked about this before that like, unlike the mm -hmm. privacy situation where GDPR or ECPA in the US, you know, if you turn over the data of individuals that might be controlled by Europe or the US to an authoritarian state, there is a conflict of law scenario. Mm -hmm. How would you create a conflict of law scenario in this case? I mean, yeah, so I would start at a much lower bar and just ask for some rhetoric um, from, mm -hmm. from the government saying, you know, when when these companies are pushing back against the government, like we saw, you know, Twitter, the old Twitter uh, would take a stand uh, yeah. against the Modi government and go to court. I'd like to see more sort of uh, rhetoric from the government or support and saying, you know, we, we support our, our, our companies. Uh, Except, in, I mean, this is the real politique here. Is, right, absolutely, uh, of course. Is yeah. that like we're in the middle of the Western alliance of the five eyes trying mm -hmm. to recruit India into... A coalition. People have even talked about India entering into an official coalition with the Anglophone uh, Pacific countries against China. And so you have a situation where Joe Biden, India assassinates somebody apparently in Canada, yep. our closest, most important ally, you know, haven't really done anything objectionable since the War of 1812 and the fact that they make kind of crappy beer. Um, oh God, is Jeff Hancock here? Uh, <laughs> that would be real trouble. You know, like they get kill somebody on Canadian soil and the U.S. barely has a peep about it. Mm -hmm. So to, to think that the United States in a situation where, we're, where India is the massive prize in trying to counterbalance this new Cold War with China, the, the government is going to say something about a content moderation decision is just, I think, completely Na unrealistic. Naive. Uh, is the no, naive. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I, am not I did no, not I say mean, naive. Fair. And then, you know, and then when I when I raise this, the other answer I get is you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, you don't know the back channeling that's going on. I'm sure it's better than what we see. Well, behind it can't the scenes, be worse. My experience <laughs> is everything that's behind the scenes is so much better yeah, than what's in right. public. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. It could be worse. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, it's a depressing segment. It's a depressing segment and India is having elections in 2024. <laughs> right. um, it's going to be a huge deal. I mean, 2024 is turning out to be, as, as I think we're going to talk about it this a bit, uh, the Olympics of election disinformation because there's so many important elections uh, going on. And But man, Modi's crackdown, the fact that there's been very little pushback on either of these stories. Mm -hmm. If I was the BJP, I'd be feeling pretty empowered right now. Right. And the other, you know, uh, little tidbit from the post reporting was saying, you know, Twitter, which has been historically more forceful in pushing back against uh, the government, um, didn't take any action when this uh, network What? Was yeah, I know. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. The crowd is shocked that the world's largest, you know, one of the largest possible buyers of electronic of electrical vehicles, where there's lots and lots of pictures of Elon Musk shaking the hand of Narendra Modi trying to get Teslas entered in India, that Twitter is not taking a stand here. I am shocked. The crowd is shocked. It is amazing. Free speech absolutist Elon Musk. So this is a perfect segue to our Twitter corner. That was an actual trombone player this time, <laughs> yeah. right? Everybody can confirm that. That's why they're laughing. Thank you to the Leland Stanford Junior <laughs> University Merchant band right. uh, for playing that. <laughs> so, uh, talk, speaking of 2024 um, and uh, depressing stories, so in our Twitter corner this week, after introducing the feature in 2022 for users to report misleading political content or mis election misinformation, X now uh, has in the past week removed that possibility, that uh, that affordance from its platforms for every country but the European Union. Uh, I'm sure the European Union is doing a nice little victory lap about that. And it has also, uh, in the past few days, done deep cuts into its disinformation and election integrity team, um, despite what 
quote-unquote, Lin- the CEO, Linda Yaccarino, uh, said on stage at the Code Conference. I, I feel like there's some air quotes in your saying <laughs> yeah. CEO there, yeah, Evelyn. Actually, yeah, I can, I can do them and they actually do something oh. with a live audience. The CEO, um, <laughs> Linda Yaccarino. So, yes, uh, so so it's not looking good uh, uh, for the platform with these. I mean, they're making it they're pretty clear. Um, I mean, it's always been, the writing's been yeah. on the wall, that this is the trend that they're going in. But they're saying it pretty explicitly with uh, both removing the affordance to even report it, like yeah. not that it was going to do very much anything anyway, and then removing the people that would have enforced that. I mean, it's kind of a nice level of honesty here, right? Right. That you're like, we were going to take your reports and immediately send them to Dev Knoll, right? (laughs) Is what they were doing before. And now they don't even take your reports, right? They save you. They show you the respect of basically signaling that whatever, if you care about election disinformation, they'll do nothing about it. It's such a positive spin. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and this has been, I mean, this has <laughs> been an interesting- It's platform where you get respect. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it has been an interesting week because effectively there's an individual who's on the election disinformation team in, in Ireland who was attacked by a number of people uh, and uh, was being investigated. And it it looks super complicated, but Ireland, unlike the United States, actually has labor laws. Um, And so it turns out your CEO is not allowed to just uh, defame you publicly and then fire you for no reason. (laughs) So this will be interesting to see how this plays out in Ireland, which is, um, as I'm sure most of the people here know, uh, is the headquarters for most of the tech companies in Europe uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly uh, tax-related which is a result, I saw this incredible graph on the per capita GDP of Ireland, and it's like, it's completely ridiculous. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's, it's the Guinness. Um, it's, it's the Guinness, yeah. They're shipping a lot of Guinness to get to like, whatever, 80,000 euros right. or something. Um, but yeah, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see how the Irish courts handle that. But I mean, the, the big net net is, uh, it, it's not shocking to anybody, but Twitter has given up on this, which is unfortunate because Twitter really was, Twitter was never, as we've talked about, I mean, and I apologize to any ex-Twitter people here. I don't think we have any current uh, ex or Twitter uh, employees at the Trust and Safety Research Conference, but for, you know, there's a lot of good people who used to work there. Um, Twitter was never like the most well-resourced company in this space. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's statement that Twitter's a clown car that drove into a gold mine was always like a reasonably appropriate, but they they were the leaders in a lot of the thought processes around how are we going to deal with these, you know, from a transparency issue, from, um, you know, bird watch and the ability to like tag stuff as disinformation, which is still going strong. These ideas came out of Twitter that then were adopted by other folks because the Twitter folks, while not having all the people and all the researchers and all the data and all the money um, that maybe a meta or a YouTube did, were really open about doing that public experimentation. And so to, to see them just completely openly say that election disinformation is not something that exists is really dis- depressing. Um, that being said, the only upside here is that Twitter has become much less important in the United States, right? It is no longer the most relevant political platform in the U.S. because of this kind of great dispersion of people across multiple platforms. So while it is unfortunate, I think it is not as important as this decision would have been in, in 2016 to 2020. Right. Okay, so the question then is heading into 2024, is Twitter providing sort of cover for the other platforms and, and being a, a leader and creating a trend or is it going to be an outlier? And so I guess just more broadly, I mean, this is something that my like non-law, non-internet policy people are asking me about, like, should I be really panicking about 2024 and and, and how should I be feeling? And so, Alex, how are you feeling uh, about 2024? About 2024? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> let's confine it to... <laughs> let's look at Alex's uh, browser history. Let's see. Okay. Uh, for frozen dried food that will last for five years. Uh, how much money does it take to buy a visa in Portugal? Yeah. Uh, Portugal, right. nice. Yeah, yeah. Ways to sneak out of the United States. Yeah, so, no, I'm feeling great. Um, I'm super excited about the future for American democracy. Okay, great. Like, I, I think, I mean, there's a bunch of negative things happening, right? Like, obviously, like you said, Musk has, on all these areas, set the bar so incredibly low that it, instead of a competition, if, like, is, if you are not personally amplifying white supremacists than like any other CEO. You're a looks, responsible CEO. You're a responsible CEO, yeah, right? Great. So like if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you're like, well, that's that's not that hard, right? <laughs> like, he's uh, he's sitting at home of like, <laughs> yeah. oh man, I, the, you know, the descendant of Holocaust survivors, all I have to do is not retweet Nazis and I'm doing okay, yeah. is like a much lower bar for Mark Zuckerberg than has existed in the past, right? right. Um, so I do think he has created permission structure for people to take it. I think the political attacks against us have been a huge problem. And, and, and it, I think in the long run, is incredibly short-sighted by the people who are mostly on the right who are attacking any kind of election disinformation stuff because what we're seeing is we're stuck in this discussion where everything's about 2016, right? Where it's about Russia and Trump 
but the world has moved on. The the largest um, you know the largest networks that are being run online for foreign interference are by the People's Republic of China, by the Chinese Communist Party. They are not fans of Republicans, right? If you look at CCP disinformation, it is a lot of it pushes on the left. It does create fractures in the Democratic Party, but a lot of it intentionally attacks directly Republicans. Yet we're stuck in this 2016, 2017 mind, mindset um, of thinking that this is should be a completely partisan issue and it's really, really frustrating. So I, I think that has been become a huge problem. I think that the disassembly of these teams at the companies have been a problem. I mean, X has completely destroyed it, but there have been decent layoffs at places like Meta. Unfortunately, I have a lot of resumes from people um, who are looking for other jobs and uh, you know just through the layoffs and kind of the de-emphasis of this. And then what are we seeing in the backdrop is we're seeing the politicization of the work, you're seeing the government kind of totally give up on doing any of this. I think a lot of the political fights that are going on or mean that the kind of work that you've seen out of NSA, Cyber Command, FBI to go after foreign influence campaigns are probably not going to be effective this year. And, I, and I'm really afraid of LLMs here. I think there's, in the past, there's way too much overstatement. People way too much focus on actual deep fakes of you're going to create a, an artifact that is completely artificial and is a lie. Well, that can be debunked. My biggest problem with AI is that it totally changes the economies of running troll farms and that the efforts to create 80,000 pieces of content in the 2016 election by the Russians required them to staff a building full of 22 to 25 year old Russian Russians who spoke English well enough to pretend to be Americans. That's expensive. That causes lots of OPSEC problems. Um, you know, those internet research agency employees kept on giving interviews to the independent press, right? Like it's, it's really not cheap or easy to do that. But now three or four people with a open source LLM who just read English well enough to edit it can do the exact same thing, right? And um, can generate all of that content themselves. So the, the lowering of the bar of the creation of lots of what looks like legitimate content is actually really terrifying for me. So yes, I, I think 2024 is looking to be really messy right now. Right, and of course the other trend that we've been seeing and it's been a theme of today and uh, we could have talked about it in the first segment about the uh, report on uh, CSAM as well, is the locking down of transparency on all of these platforms, uh, Twitter turning off the API and just making research uh, a lot harder for, for yeah. academics and so visibility into even what's going on on these platforms, whether it is better or worse, uh, is, is, is much worse. And even if X hadn't done that, had locked, you know, turned off the API and started threatening researchers who bypass it, we would have ended up in this situation because of this massive fracturing of the US social media ecosystem post January 6th, mm -hmm. right? That like the moves that Twitter and Facebook made post January 6th pushed a bunch of people into alternative platforms. And so now, I mean, probably the most important platform is very possible in 2024, the most important platform on the right will be Telegram, right? Will be a platform that has been incredibly it has become one of the most important platforms because of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. It is a total incredible hotbed of open source intelligence of both Ukrainians and Russians documenting in real time the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but it has also become a really core part of right-wing networks in the United States. And, and as David said earlier, has basically no content policy. Effectively, like, oh, effectively a negative content policy. I mean, one of our findings in our original SG CSAM report was you should not trade CSAM in public channels, wink, wink, right? <laughs> like, I've never seen a platform say CSAM should not be in public places, but then intentionally ignore private spaces, right? So yes, they, they their lack of trust and safety work is an advertisement for the platform. And so Telegram, it, Telegram, like their encryption sucks. It, they, there's no real good protections there other than the fact that that ecosystem is fragmented into many, many, many channels. And so seeing what is popular and what is going on becomes much more technically difficult. So yes, I, understanding what's even happening is quite possible. Actions will happen. You know, if, if something bad had happened in 2020, it was driven off of Twitter, somebody would have noticed. Now we could have a riot or we could have an election worker killed or some horrible thing happen in 2024. And it, it was planned on Telegram and we have absolutely no idea what the genesis was. And, and that's like my real fear here is these kind of stochastic events happening and us having no explainability of, of what was driving it. Right. So talking about transparency, uh, we have someone that thinks a lot about, talks a lot about, writes about, and uh, is generally very good at transparency. We have our own Daphne Keller here who directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. Uh, 
Daphne just appeared magically. In her Whoa, seat. where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, Daphne, big innovation, uh, quote unquote, uh, in, in transparency this week, um, and I saw you uh, tweeting, posting, Xing about this, is uh, the DSA transparency database that was launched a couple of days ago. So, in theory, um, this should include every statement of reasons set by a platform uh, explaining its content moderation decisions. Uh, and it was launched, I think, on the 27th or a couple of days ago. And a few hours ago, uh, or if I just refresh it now, how many statements of reasons uh, does it have? It has uh, 12,264,433 statements of reasons in this database. Is this incredibly useful to you, Daphne? <laughs> it's really cool. It is quite cool. <laughs> so I, I've been a heckler ever since they said they were going to do this because it's really really hard to build a database that tracks every single content moderation action of all of these platforms. But they built it and it's cool and I'm learning things from it. So I, either I need to retract my heckling or my heckling worked and caused them to put sufficient resources into it. Oh, yes, I, I feel like everything good that the European Commission has done was because of you, Daphne. It's on me. It's on me. <laughs> so like something that you and I have talked about before, when I first looked at it, which was day, day one or two, TikTok had put in one and a half million statements of reasons. So they'd done a, one and a half million content moderation actions of some sort, demotion, demonetization, labor removal um, and and reported those to the commission and X had reported two yeah <laughs> so it's slightly better uh, two days later although not not much the discrepancy is still there so uh, a couple of hours ago uh, TikTok had reported uh, 5,999,264 content moderation decisions whereas Twitter or X uh, had reported 23,087 over a couple of days that seems uh, low I think so what is in are these are these files interesting what do, what do you see when you look up one of these statement of reasons well they're, they're really interesting if you you just want to see what it is that different platforms are telling people about what they did and why. So the commission put together this um, an API for platforms to send their, they're CCing the European Commission basically when they send these statements of reason to people, except they have to redact all the personally identifying information so you don't know like what was the content, <laughs> which might be it a seems key question. Relevant, uh, <laughs> for understanding yeah. the reasons. Um, it was bad. Just yeah. trust him. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but so it's interesting to see just how within the fields mandated by this API, like what was the reason you took this down? If it was a contract, which term in the contract, blah, blah, blah. Different platforms have taken really different approaches. So TikTok is providing pretty good, comprehensible rationales, I think, Apple's App Store had, when I checked, submitted, I think it was 464 notices, and they are incomprehensible. They say, this was removed because it was beyond the scope of service. See our toss. Also see our toss. You know, and like that's kind of the end of it. So seeing the diversity is interesting. I think it's quite evident looking at it that um, the the fields that the platforms have to fill in for the API, they don't all understand what they mean or agree on the meaning. And so it will be really hard to compare what different platforms are doing. And I don't think that's the platform's fault, actually. Like, I think this just was rolled out very, very fast. And it's something, like, we have platform researchers here. You guys understand how complicated the data on this stuff can be. Doing it slowly and iteratively to get it right would have been a better approach. But, you know, move fast, break things. Right. <laughs> I feel like that's a poster I've seen in Brussels. They're, they're really into that. It's everywhere I mean, It's not shocking that, like, this is a problem a lot of people run into, is that you imagine that if you define an API, that that is your data schema, but then lacking normalization or like a data dictionary of what you actually put in there and normalization across different ent entities makes it effectively, even if you're using the same schema, it makes it effectively useless. Would you say it's useful? Or it is useful. Yeah. It is absolutely useful. I mean, you, you can get a sense of, you know, it has pretty complex advanced search options. So you can search just for things that were demoted or just for things, I'm not using the right terms from their schema, but um, you know, just for things that were for hate speech or just for things that affected a particular country or were on a particular platform. So you can kind of narrow down the slice that you want to look at. And you don't know if you're getting the real slice because you don't know if the labels were all used the same way or et cetera. But it's, um, it's something. It's something we didn't have before. Right. 
Yeah, the numbers really do tell a story. Like we have this uh, wide spectrum of like uh, X, which is just, I don't know what it's doing, phoning it in uh, and, and, and not really trying. And then we have like TikTok at the other end uh, of the spectrum, which is like the kidding classes, like got their hand up being like, we are complying. We are doing all of our homework. Don't ban us. Yeah, don't ban yeah, us, exactly. please, please. Well, they're the good kid, really desperate for that gold star. And then like Facebook and, and YouTube, I looked at those. They are like way lower uh, than TikTok. They're sort of uh, 600,000 or 400,000. Uh, they're the rich ago. kids who know yeah, that they're, they're going to get like, like legacy admissions <laughs> somewhere so they can get a, a gentleman's <laughs> beat. <Right>. Ouch. <laughs> that, um, which has never happened at the Leland Stanford Junior <laughs> University. <laughs> Of course not. Wow, that was loud laughter. That one. <laughs> a little awkward. <laughs> um, so, okay, so this is what's happening in Europe. This is this huge regulatory scheme that's that's uh, it's been spun up in Europe and it's like getting results. There are these statements of reasons coming in. Like, let's fly back over here or, or um, apparate as, as you can do. Uh, and like th there's sort of all of these legislatures in, in this country that would be, that are trying to maybe get something like this, force companies to give more statements of reasons for what they're doing or more numbers and, and data about their content moderation activities. And, and this is going to be, a big, I think, a really big year for transparency and uh, and the First Amendment and these like very strong debates about whether that's even something that legislatures uh, can do. So why don't you sort of give us an overview of the, the landscape in, in the United States? Yeah, so there are at least four state transparency laws. Now, I've been up for a lot of hours. I feel like there might be a fifth one I'm forgetting. But the the two that are probably most important because they're probably about to go to the Supreme Court are the ones in Texas and Florida, which were enacted by those legislatures as part of the so-called must-carry laws that require platforms to carry content against their will, including hate speech and disinformation and you know things that there might be reasons to want them to take down. And you know, they were in the transparency rules. I'm somebody who's asked for transparency for a long time. I think that transparency mandates are appropriate. I think that they can be constitutional. I don't think these ones are constitutional. They were drafted with the same extreme lack of care as the rest of the laws. And they just kind of fail in a lot of the details of how you might want transparency to really operate. And they do so in a way that will be phenomenally burdensome, just like lots and lots of work for platforms, which they can avoid if they just moderate content less, like Texas and Florida wanted them to do in the first place. So there's this kind of like burden-related problem why these are badly designed laws. And then there's also the problem that we already know, like Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton went after Twitter demanding disclosures of all of their internal communications about content moderation in express retaliation for deplatforming President Trump. There is a clear history of his requiring disclosures as a means of trying to strong arm platforms, Twitter in that case, in, into adopting the speech policies that he wants them to adopt. There are examples of this on both sides of the aisle, by the way. It is not solely a Republican problem. And both of those issues, the, the risk of state abuse and the burden issue, you could redraft these rules to make it a lot better and make it so that depending what First Amendment standard you're applying, maybe they would survive. But that's not what has happened here. These and, are not good transparency laws. And you have to take off the t-shirt that says, I am doing this because of in retaliation for First Amendment protected uh, right. decisions. This yes. is a, yeah, that kind of gives away the game. And then there's, there are also transparency laws in New York and California. The New York one has been struck down on First Amendment grounds. The California one is the subject of a First Amendment challenge brought by X and Elon Musk, and they have this you know, venerated First Amendment lawyer, Floyd Abrams, representing them. I suspect the California one will be struck down on the same grounds as the New York one, which is a, they have a different issue than the one I've described. I mean, they have the issues I've described also, but they, they specifically say, platforms, you have to explain your policies on the following kinds of speech that we don't like. So the New York one is you have to explain your hate speech policies, and the California one is you have to explain, it's like five listed things. But they're, they're specifically making it so that if you are a platform that hosts a kind of speech that the lawmakers disapprove of, then you take on more burdens. And that's why the New York one got struck down. Yeah, so I mean, you and I have talked about transparency a lot over the years, and it's been fascinating to watch, I think. We were talking about this on the podcast last week, or 
whenever it was, uh, about, you know, sort of roll back the clock five years ago. And I think transparency was like the, the buzzword. It was what everyone wanted. It was sort of a very, uh, it was the easy thing to call for because we had so little of it and it would, it would advance knowledge and, and the ability to hold these companies to account. And then you have all of these legislatures, mostly on the right, but but not exclusively, like we have the New York example as well, weaponizing transparency laws and showing how they can be tools of, of government abuse as well. And so when you're thinking about transparency laws, you have, you know, I, I sort of think of it as the Ken Paxton problem. Like, how can you draft this law such that if you, if the enforcer was Ken Paxton, um, it's it's going to, it, it, it's, it's uh, still going to be like a useful or, or a safe government tool. And I mean, that's a really, really tricky problem. The, the Paxton problem is a tricky problem. But I guess my fear is that, you know, the, the, we're going to be so scared off by the Paxton problem that we're going to forsake the idea of transparency laws altogether. And we're going to get, you know, bad constitutional ruling law from the Supreme Court, whether it's in these net choice cases out of Texas and Florida, or if we, you know, we've said there's this, this California XV Bonta that, like you said, it's probably may well be struck down and then go up to the Supreme Court as well. And I guess I really worry that we're going to create constitutional law that says the First Amendment prohibits transparency mandates uh, in all cases, um, which is going to end up with a very deregulatory First Amendment and, uh, and, and not allow, I think, important tools to hold these companies to account. But am I just being too sort of pessimistic or what do you think? Oh, no, oh, no. Your pessimism is always warranted. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a funny thing in the Texas and Florida cases is that those state AGs who are usually aligned with business interests are advocating a standard that businesses generally hate. So if you're ExxonMobil, you don't want the state to be able to compel you to turn over a whole bunch of information about your operations. But the arguments that Texas and Florida are using are exactly the kinds of argument they're using it to make platforms do this, but they're exactly the arguments that you would use to make ExxonMobil do it. Thank you so much, Daphne. Thank you so much. Okay. Wow, it's amazing how she just disappeared like that. Oh. <laughs> Where'd she go? Okay, and so next we have the wonderful Alison Bowden joining us, who is the executive director of the Free Speech Coalition. Thank you very much, Alison, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Big fan. Long time listener, first time caller. Well, you know, all 12 of us. Yeah, that's right. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. And that's all the time we have for Allison. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. Your input has been wonderful. All right. So let's start with the basics. What is the Free Speech Coalition? So the Free Speech Coalition is the trade association for the adult industry. So we cover not only content creation, but also you know, toys and, and other adult material. Great. Um, and we've asked you on because you're playing a very important role in a lot of these. Uh, the, the, there's been a wave of legislation uh, coming out from various states around age verification laws. So I wonder if you could just sort of talk us through the landscape that you're seeing. What, what are these laws and uh, where are they coming from? Sure. So in 2021, Louisiana passed a, a law requiring any website that has more than 33 and one third percent material harmful to minors, they needed to do age verification. And they specified a bunch of ways that you can do that, including their own LA Wallet app. And that went into effect January 1, 2023. In the wake of that, 33 other laws have been proposed in 26 states as of today. <laughs> because uh, last week it was a few fewer and seven of them have passed those laws, soon to be joined by North Carolina as soon as the governor either doesn't veto or does sign that law. And so what they are mandating is that, I mean, it's, it's very much directed at, at adult sites, right? There are maybe some sites out there that have more than 33 and a third percent harmful to minors materials that aren't really being targeted, but the lawmakers themselves have come out and said, well, this is about porn. This is the Pornhub law. And very much they're being targeted. You know, our adult companies are, are the ones in the crosshairs. So we're kind of fighting back. We are suing Louisiana, Utah, and Texas uh, on the grounds that these are unconstitutional laws because these laws have been <laughs> found unconstitutional in the past. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. I'm, I'm curious though, for your thoughts. Like, that's an extraordinary wave of legislation. That is a lot 
of states uh, in a very short period of time. And just what what is causing that wave of legislation right now? What's causing that panic? You know, it's a good question. I think it's it's not something that's happening in isolation. You know, right now we're seeing these laws and we're also seeing a lot of laws targeting trans folks. We're seeing a lot of book bans. We're seeing, I mean, even LGBT, you know, laws are being either considered and passed and having lost the right to a legal abortion, I think is not, un, you know, it's not a coincidence. So I think that it's part of a, an overall kind of cultural, you know, attack, essentially. And as a wise person put it, uh, porn is the tip of the spear, so to speak. <laughs> but <Ba-dum-tsh. laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah. I want to note that I did not laugh at that. <laughs> True. Yeah. A lot awkward. <laughs> Thank you. So, so Evelyn, I'm, I'm interested in like, so first Allison, if you talk about a little bit functionally, what, what do you have to do to comply with this law? And Evelyn, where is the constitutional bar here? Of like how far you can push? You know, we, have, we have all kinds of laws that have, you know, th- some kind of burden, but like what level of burden has to you, do you think it's an unconstitutional level? And is this something that's not actually well-defined enough for, for lower courts to be making decisions right now? So depending on the state, uh, we can use Louisiana uh, as the example. They dictate that you have to verify someone's age using their government ID or essentially data broker information. So uh, I think it has something to do with like financial information, including things like mortgages or, or loans. Right. So I mean, they're talking about for for people here who have like gotten a credit card or something recently. You end up having a which of these people is your these really creepy questions that you get asked when you apply. You put in your social security number, and they come back with like which of these people is your sibling, or which of these houses have you lived in, or which of these were your employers. So that would be good enough if you didn't have a government ID. Exactly. Which, I mean, I'm sure we know that kids don't know anything about their parents or where they live or any of that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure my kids could figure out 80% of those questions pretty quickly. Well, I mean, the data brokers have it, so I imagine it's out there someplace. And then, so checking government ID isn't that easy to do on the internet. So, you know, in Louisiana, they are, I think, the only state so far who has passed one of these laws, it actually has a mobile driver's license that has an API that you can hit to check it online. Otherwise, it's really just useful in like a convenience store. So that app, in order to verify your age, they say it takes just 30 seconds. And, and what I'm sure you've found in these states is that nobody looks at porn anymore, right? Is that is oh, yeah, that no. the outcome here? Is that- Porn's gone. No, yeah. <laughs> no, of course not. But what they're doing is they're, you know, folks maybe understandably are going to websites and going, whoa, you want me to show my ID to look at porn? I would prefer not do that. And then where are they going? Places that aren't complying with laws. Right. So, I yeah. mean, so that's uh, a, a good segue because I, I guess I'm going to phrase my answer as a, as a question to you, Allison, for like the people who say, what's wrong with having age verification on adult websites? Like, I don't want my kid looking at porn. Uh, wh- why is that a First Amendment issue? Wh- what's the problem? What's what's your answer to that? So, well, first I would say, I don't want your kid looking at porn either for a variety of reasons. But the problem is that it's not technologically a very feasible thing to do right now to protect someone's privacy completely and also verify exactly how old they are. And not only that, part of our argument is that these laws are unconstitutional and represent a prior restraint because that 30 seconds it takes you to figure out the app and put it into Pornhub and like have it come back, that's not permissible when we're talking about accessing protected speech. Evelyn, I don't know if you'd agree with that as a First Amendment lawyer, but... Yeah, no, Gosh, absolutely. if only we had a first member <laughs> yeah. professor here. That's right. Um, don't I get a theme song or a sound effect or anything? Or? Uh, when you get tenure, oh. you get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, better be a really good sound effect, though. I'm getting excited. Now I want tenure. Um, yeah, I mean, so Allison uh, uh, mentioned this, and, and you asked, like, is the standard well-defined? And, like, the standard's really well-defined. This is something that was settled a long time ago by the Supreme Court, um, we, and, and this is uh, – it's really relevant because 
because all of a sudden, you, you know, the Free Speech Coalition, I don't need to inform you, I'm informing the listeners, uh, won an injunction of the Texas law in this case. And the, and the district court order in that uh, case was basically like, the Supreme Court solved this. We talked about this in Reno in 1997 and Ashcroft v. ACLU in 2002. And we as a district court cannot just go and like disregard this binding Supreme Court precedent that says that, you know, the problem is not that uh, you are burdening, uh, you know, ch- children's access to porn. Uh, the problem is that you're burdening adults' access to porn. And that is uh, like a, a constitu- that's constitutionally protected speech. Um, uh, you know, un- unprotected obscenity is an extremely narrow uh, category. And so that's something that the, the first amendment doesn't allow and so the the it is amazing to watch these laws which are basically like the district court said in this case like uh you know th- these laws from from 20 years ago redux they're, they're they're not raising new issues and uh i think that could be another reason why we're seeing a wave of these laws now is that there are legislatures and lawmakers who think they might have a better shot of creating some new law and overturning some some precedent uh, Do the, the privacy issues are those important in that analysis or is it just the existence of the burden uh, well, the privacy issue is part is of the, the burden, burden okay. um, and and the chilling effect that that uh, creates. So let's say, I mean, this doesn't exist, but there's all these companies out there that are basically advertising we can do verification without violating your privacy, which is BS. But let's mm-hmm. let's imagine they actually could come up with something that you could get somebody who actually understood computers, cryptography, math, or humans uh, to say is actually privacy protecting. Would that change? Do you think the analysis here? Yeah, I mean, I think it would because that is, I think that's exactly the line of attack for people who say, well, we can change the law because Reno, the the case, uh, the the leading precedent in this area talked about like the state of technology and talked about the fact that it wasn't possible to do this uh, in the current state of technology. And so the argument being made is, oh, but now we have better age verification tools. And so I guess like throwing the question back to you and you you answered it in your question, but like lots of people are saying this. People are saying the world has changed, the technology has changed, and this is is much easier and safer and, and less friction these days. Um, is that true? First, for the Stanford undergraduates in the room, Janet Reno was the Attorney General of the United States <laughs> back before <laughs> you were born. Um, no, I, I, I hate saying this because we're going to get email or I'll get a student come up to me with a startup idea, but somebody's going to say, like, I've got a blockchain solution to this. But no, there's no actually really good reason, to, a way to verify somebody's identity any kind of reasonable way while being privacy preserving, identify just with based on any of the technologies we have, our lack of any kind of cryptographic component in the identification cards we are given, and just the reality of having physically access to either the information about somebody, a, a special code that's tied to them, or even the physical ID, doesn't mean that that's actually the right person. So short of you know, where the People's Republic of China comes out in this, which is effectively you have to show government ID in person to buy a SIM card that gets permanently tied into a database and all kinds of other incredibly intrusive authoritarian steps. I, I don't think you can get, get there in any kind of reasonably technically supportable way. Right. But these laws are still being passed uh, and they are still uh, on the books and going going to go into effect unless something happens. And so that's something, uh, I guess, is you, Alison, but it must feel like a DDoS attack to have all of these laws coming at you uh, and then you have to go around filing First Amendment lawsuits and say, hold on, let's hold up some old precedents. Um, like, is that how it is? And, and, and how do you sort of navigate? We talked about, you know, you, you filed the challenge in Texas, but where else are you, are you litigating at the moment? And how do you navigate, like, which, which cases to bring? Like I mentioned, there's seven of these laws that have already been passed, and we're only litigating in three states. That's Utah, where we are appealing a dismissal by the district court. Louisiana, where we have a preliminary injunction hearing next Wednesday on 10-4. And in Texas, where we won the preliminary injunction to keep the law from going into effect... And then the Fifth Circuit stayed that, so the law did go into effect, but we have another hearing that's coming up actually very quickly for the Fifth Circuit, also next Wednesday, 10-4. So we are a very tiny organization. There are more of these laws than there are people who work for the Free Speech Coalition, freespeechcoalition.com slash donate. And <laughs> we had to be pretty strategic, right? We, we have to, to sort of choose our battles. There's no sense in going after two states in the same circuit, that sort of thing. But ultimately, you know, we are the ones fighting these laws. We are the only, you know, organization that really focuses on the rights of adults to adult expression. And so we're out there. We do have allies. Got some really, really good 
amicus support the other day. But yeah, it's really a, a, a question of, okay, do we have enough folks on our tiny legal team? <laughs> we can max out at three lawsuits right now. We're considering a couple more, you know, thinking about the states that have passed it. We've got Louisiana, Utah, Virginia, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Montana. So if you have that you know, circuit map in your head, you can think about what might be the most advantageous place to go. But it's definitely difficult, and we're really buoyed by the fact that like this is settled law. <laughs> like We're on the side of right here, and we hope that despite any changes to the courts in recent years, it's very clear that precedent means something. Right, which is really the lesson of the last several yeah. years. That is, is that uh, well-defined <laughs> civil liberties. I walk liberties. into the classroom and say, precedent, and everyone's like, oh, got it. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Decisis is not for suckers. No, no. And, and so, of course, we're worried. And, you know, you got to get out there and fight the good fight. Well, Godspeed in uh, bringing those cases, and uh, you know you you will be creating creating law. When I teach, uh, I teach uh, Ashcroft v. Free Speech Coalition from 2002, which was a challenge that the Free Speech Coalition brought against ban of virtual child pornography. And so this is a, a kind of uh, the, you know who knows in 20 years uh, the the Free Speech Coalition cases, uh, the caption that we will be teaching uh, in our First Amendment classes as a as a result of all this law that uh, that you may, may well be making in the next few years. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Allison. All right, Alex, the part of the podcast that everyone really came for. Oh, yes. <laughs> now it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for the moderated content sports update. <laughs> yes. Well, so we have some more legal sports news, uh, oh, really? which is the battle to control the Pac-12 continues. So in realignment land, uh, as everybody who listens to the podcast knows, the Pacific 12 Conference, uh, which used to be Pacific 10 uh, and the Pacific 8 before that, which grew and grew, is now dying and 10 of the 12 members have pledged to move to different conferences next year. What does that mean? The two, the two schools that are left, the Washington State University and Oregon State University, have sued in federal court saying that under the bylaws of the Pac-12, everybody who's announced that they're leaving no longer can sit on the board. And they have, are so far winning in court. There's another hearing on November 14th, but it looks like the conference that all of these teams play in is actually going to be taken over by the two incredibly pissed off state <laughs> schools who have been abandoned by first UCLA and USC, but now all of their compatriots in the Pac-12, which means they can probably loot and like pull the wiring out of the walls to try to make up for the fact that they've gotten really screwed here. So it's, it's kind of amazing. And people are talking about it's a really big day for, for Twitter sports lawyers because people are looking into all these crazy clauses that the Pac-12 effectively is guaranteed a, a playoff berth, and they're supposed to have six or eight teams, but they have three years to fix that. So for several years, the one of the playoff berths in the college football playoff might go to either Oregon State or Washington <laughs> State every single year, whoever wins between them. Because, but they would have to apparently have to have the conference. They would have to play like six games against each other, back and forth, back and forth. It's the whole thing started out to be incredibly cuckoo and amazing. Um, so there's that. And then what does everybody here know is the most important sporting news from this weekend? Who went to a football game this weekend? Taylor Swift. So it's a piece of sporting news that even I knew. Oh, yeah. amazing. I want to hear. What what do you know about oh, this? No. <laughs> Follow-up questions. This is not fair. That is that's basically the extent of my knowledge. I'm going uh, Socratic. <laughs> so, so Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift is now probably possibly rumored it seems to be dating yes some sports dude sports guy uh, his <laughs> name's travis travis kelsey plays with the, is his with name. the ball there's plays a ball, the ball. Involved. yeah and he's good at it i think he's pretty good at it he's pretty good do you know what he does with that ball <laughs> does he throw it he throws it. it yes <laughs> good job evelyn right, good. despite it being called football yeah. he uses his right. hand yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's it. I'm, and she I'm went to a down. game <laughs> and people lost their minds. And so in the like in the internet, if you look at the search results, both Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, the Google search results for them have gone through the roof, the, uh, the search trends, which is like, it's the most incredible crossover uh, <laughs> in, in history of like Taylor Swift fans getting them interested in football and vice versa. So yeah. I did see that the NFL changed its handle to uh, at NFL and then open brackets Taylor's version, uh, which is uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so anyway, yes, I, I, 
I'm so glad that that happened because now we'll have something that we can talk about uh, for, for every sports update coming up is did Taylor go to the football game this weekend will become the big thing. Yeah. It's, it's actually, it's interesting because there's a bunch of like uh, people who are really angry about the fact that a huge amount of the coverage was like in the middle of important plays in this football game. They're cutting to what's Taylor doing right now. It's like Taylor's eating a fully loaded potato wing. Right? You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also apparently she's emasculating him somehow, uh, or he's becoming woke and it's terrible. Uh, that is also like the stupid poss stupidest possible timeline uh, that this is the, yes. the level of the debate. Because, um, I mean, this is how yeah. life works. Every possible thing that happens in our universe has to boil down to a bipolar right. culture war, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So, yes. Nothing I, is safe. <laughs> nothing is safe. All how right. are the Matildas doing? They're nothing. <laughs> oh, they're off. Oh, that was not... Oh, oh, come on. Oh, sorry. We can edit that out. <laughs> All right. Well, with that... Um, uh, this is Bean. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I got a moderated I gotta... content weekly update live show. It's available in all the usual places, uh, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. Uh, this episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino over there. Woo, John! Uh, He's real. It's not just a name we guy. make up. Um, <laughs> Really uh, appreciate his analysis and briefing every week. Um, and it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. A special thanks also this week to Ben Rosenthal hey, ben. Uh, for helping set all of this up. Um, and to Justin Fu and Rob Huffman always for helping get it in people's ears. And thank you everyone for coming. This has been super fun. Um, and uh, we will uh, we will talk to you next week. And I think you pointed out there's more people in this room who have ever rated the podcast. Oh, that's true. So let's yes. get some coordinated and authentic <laughs> yeah. behavior going, Lock people. Lock the doors. I want to see to get out. You have to show me a five-star rating on your Apple podcast app. Lock it. All right. See you, everyone. <laughs>